Uh, Let's get our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Mark chapter 3 this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 3. For nine years, I had the honor of being one of the chaplains for our Chaska Police Department. And in that time, I made some great friends. One of the closest friends I made on the force is Sergeant Mike Duzan, who is also a fellow believer. Uh, I first met Sergeant Duzan when uh, we had a pastor's luncheon, and he came in full uniform and, and spoke and shared about they were starting a chaplain program, and that's how I first got involved. But when I first met him, he's very friendly, but just also very professional. Then I got to see Sergeant Duzan around his fellow officers, and a little bit of the guard was let down, and there was some warmth, and there was some friendliness, and, and then I heard one of them call him Doozy, like a, like a, a nickname. And then I was on some ride-alongs and some call-outs with him. And I got to see Sergeant Duzan uh, deal with people who, let's just say, were up to no good. And he was very official and commanding, and particularly when it was protecting the innocent. And then I got to see just Mike around his family, his wife and kids. And what a tender, caring, loving husband and father he is. Seeing Mike in all of those settings gave me a much better understanding of who he is. If I only saw him in uniform on the job, I would only get one, a one-dimensional aspect and understanding of this man. But to see him in these different relationships and different settings and responding to different people, it gave me a better understanding of my friend. And I think that's important when it comes to each other, And I think it's important when it comes to Jesus. One of the reasons that we have these beautiful stories that are listed out, and and Mark particularly, in kind of rapid-fire fashion, one of the reasons Mark is doing this is so that we will get a full picture of who Jesus is. That we won't have just a one-dimensional understanding of Jesus, but that we will see him in different settings, responding in different ways. Because as we see Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of the character and nature of God, we're going to know him more. And I don't want to make light of that. When we, as Christians, we can say, do you know Jesus? We're usually asking someone, are you saved? Are you a Christian? But I want to pose that question in maybe a little different way this morning. Do you really know Jesus as he is? The Apostle Paul said that is the greatest treasure of all. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is worth losing everything to gain Christ and know him and be with him. And that's a gift that we're slowly unwrapping here in the gospel of Mark as we see Jesus in different settings. We're going to see him in three different settings today that we're going to focus on and kind of mine some of those details so that we can see Jesus and in turn we'll be able to know ourselves better. So let's read Mark chapter 3 verses 1 to 19 and then we're going to pray and ask for the Lord to help us. Again, he entered the synagogue, 
And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, the religious leaders, were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word today. And of all the things that we could endeavor to see this morning, show us yourself, Lord. Help us see you, Jesus. Not as simply one to gaze upon, but as one to be near and to be with and to be like. Would you meet us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. If you've walked with us through our journey through Mark to this point, you know we've seen Jesus and his identity, different facets of his person and nature. We've seen Jesus as the forgiver of sins, the friend of sinners, the healer of those who are sick. We've seen him as Lord of the Sabbath and bridegroom of his people. And in our text today, we're going to see Jesus and some different aspects of his nature by looking at Jesus in the context of different groups of people. Three groups we're going to see Jesus interact with, the critics, the crowd, and the called. First, let's examine the critics In verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus once again in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we were reminded last week that under Jewish law, it was uh, against Jewish law to do any work on the Sabbath. What was originally meant to be a blessing from God, that his people would have a day of rest and worship one day a week, the religious turned it into a burden. 
adding requirements and regulations that God never intended. One example of that is it was against Jewish law to heal on the Sabbath. Unless it was life-threatening, then they would let it slide. Well, that day there was a man with a withered hand, which is not life-threatening. But Jesus seizes upon this opportunity. This man with a withered hand, it's, I think, maybe logical to assume in a culture with manual labor that this man's livelihood was affected by this disability. But notice as we read through that story, notice that the man and his hand and his healing, as miraculous as it is, doesn't seem to be the focus of that little vignette. Because Mark immediately draws our attention to the religious leaders, the critics, and their motivations behind being there, wanting to catch Jesus breaking their law. You see, Jesus' reputation had already gone ahead of him. The religious leaders knew that Jesus claimed to forgive sin. They knew that he had power over demons. They knew that he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, and they were none too happy. So they were looking for a way to get rid of this Galilean preacher once and for all. Now, Jesus, he already knows what's in their hearts. We've seen that several times in the book of Mark. But Jesus is not hindered by the fear of man. He is not ruled by what people think or what people may think they can do to him. So in the middle of the synagogue, Jesus calls for this man with a withered hand to stand up and come forward. Now picture this for a moment from that man's perspective. This man likely knows, like everyone else by now, Jesus can heal. And this man, being in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, likely knows Jewish law, it is against the law to heal. So imagine he's probably a little nervous. But he gets up and he goes up to Jesus. The man is standing by Jesus, and Jesus turns and addresses the critics, who were not told have said anything, but Jesus already knows their hearts. They're trying to test him, but Jesus turns the table and he tests them. Verse 4, he says to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now that's a rhetorical question, right? Easy answer. Jesus is asking this not to find out the answer. He's cutting to the heart of the motivations of their crooked hearts. They were more intent on honoring man-made rules than honoring God or caring for those in need. And so they had no answer for Jesus. They knew what the answer was, but they didn't want to say it. There was a defiant silence, and that made Jesus angry. You don't hear that very often, but Jesus got angry. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now that word anger is not some instant, hot-headed, losing the temper kind of thing. That's not Jesus. That word literally means a slow burn, a slow build, as a result of constant resistance, constant opposition. And we know Jesus didn't fly off the handle because the very next word that we're told he responded in was grief. 
Jesus had grief for those with hard hearts. Sad that the very people who studied the Old Testament, who knew God's word best, did not know God's son at all. Jesus, he responds to his critics with perfect righteous anger and at the same time, perfect sadness for his enemies. Angry and sad that their hearts are numb and calloused toward God and toward the hurting. So Jesus now looks at the man standing next to him and says, stretch out your hand. Sometimes Jesus just heals with a word, and sometimes he tells people to do something. In this case, he tells the man to do something, which implies the man could have resisted. And the man may have good reason. The man could have said in a whispering tone, uh, Jesus, uh, I really appreciate this. You know, because this, this hand, it's been, a, it's been a bother all my life. Uh, but do you see who's in the crowd here? And, and do you know that they don't like you? And do you know that this is against Jewish law? And I'm sure you do. You're a rabbi and all. I know. Let's meet here tomorrow. And you and I will hook up. And I would love for you to heal this hand. He could have said that. But he didn't. In that moment, he, he risks something. He stretches out his hand, something that was impossible to do before and something that took courage for him to do now. And the Bible says it was instantly healed. Now, any objective party, we would hope if we were in the crowd, we would be among those saying, oh, this is amazing. Praise God. Maybe we would. Or maybe we would be among the critics. Someone broke the rules. Someone stepped out of line. Someone got outside the program. And so the critics began to grumble. There's something about being with Jesus that works on our hearts in a beautiful way to help us begin to care less about what people Something beautiful about being with the Lord, spending time with Jesus that, that causes us to care about what he says and what he thinks. When I hear someone say, I don't care what people think, I smile and think, yeah, you do. We all do at some level. But to be with Jesus helps that get chipped away at little by little. And we see that on display here with this man, and it's a reminder for us as well, that, that when we spend time with the Lord, that when, when we have threats of man, we begin to see those threats for what they are, impotent and empty compared to the promises of Jesus. Now, for these religious leaders, that was the last straw. Mark said they immediately went out. They joined up with some political opponents, the Herodians, so that they could conspire and plot to kill Jesus. Don't miss the hypocrisy Mark wants us to see here. The group of people who were so morally offended that someone got healed on the Sabbath apparently have no problem plotting murder on the Sabbath. Here on display is the religious critic. Hard-hearted, legalistic, more concerned with keeping rules 
than helping the hurting. More intent on man's law than God's grace. Aiming their judgment at everyone around them, blind to their own sin. Instead of giving thanks, they complain. More concerned with winning an argument than winning a soul. Being so familiar with God's word, yet so unfamiliar with God's heart. And in stark contrast, at the center of the story is Jesus. Reflecting perfectly God's nature. A righteous anger toward sin. And yet a grief toward the sinner. Perfect justice and perfect love. Jesus knew their hearts. He was fully aware of their motives, but he didn't fear them and he didn't let them distract him from his mission. And in one moment, by asking two simple questions, Jesus addresses both needs. He addresses his critics and he heals the hurting. Because at the end of the day, the critics and the crippled man had more in common than maybe they knew. One with a withered hand, the other with a withered heart. Both could have been healed that day, instantly. But only one laid down his pride and came to Jesus. The others held on to their pride and rejected him. To be with Jesus means our hearts are laid bare, nothing hidden. Every thought, every desire, every hurt, every struggle, every question, every doubt, it's on full display for our Lord. Now that may sound terrifying if you don't also know his love for you, that he knows us completely, and yet he loves us completely. Hearts on display for the Lord. Maybe this morning you feel some camaraderie or maybe even a conviction that you recognize some of the elements of the critic in your own heart. Let me tell you, there is hope for you this morning. There is hope that as we lay down our pride, turn to Christ, that he will take a hard heart and soften it. That's what he does. That if you find yourself more intent on seeing everyone else's faults, but you easily miss your own, Jesus is kind and good to show us a mirror, not to rub our nose in our sin, but to remind us he saves sinners and we're one of them. There's hope this morning for the critic. And we see that in how Jesus responds. Now we move on to the second group Mark puts on display for us, and that is the crowd. Jesus, he's... Healed people, he's argued with his critics, now he wants to get away with his disciples. But not so fast. The crowd follows. And not just a small crowd from one town hanging around, people are starting to flood in from all over. Look at the end of verse 7. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from all around Tyre and Sidon. Now, unless you're looking at a map, those cities may not mean a whole lot to you, but let's put it in context. Let's say Jesus is in Chaska. What this means is people were coming from as far north as St. Cloud, as far south as Mankato, as far west as Plato, and as far east as Burnsville. Now, that's, we should be amazed when we remember people had to walk 
everywhere they went. So we're talking about days of walking, tens of thousands of people walking for days just with the outside chance they will get a glimpse of Jesus. They could hear a word from Jesus and hope against hope, maybe even be touched by Jesus. Now, this was no orderly single file line. When they found Jesus, it was like a mob, everybody pressing in, everybody wanting their miracle, falling over each other. Jesus even said, let's get a boat ready lest they crush us. And so Jesus is in a boat far enough away that he can still minister to people, but close enough that he can touch them. Even though Jesus' priority is always clearly preaching the gospel, Jesus is always caring for the hurting. And even though he knew the hearts of the people in this crowd, many of which had no idea who he was, had no idea why he really came to earth, they just wanted a miracle, and Jesus gave them one. And we're told again here, Mark has shown us this in previous chapters, demon-possessed people are still coming to him and crying out. And they're not just crying out in, in terror or pain. They're, they're being very specific, calling Jesus Son of God. Verse 12, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We've seen this before, this command of silence. Now, in times past, we've seen healed people Jesus would tell them, now don't tell anybody, and then they go right out and tell everybody. And one of the things Jesus was trying to avoid is too many people finding out too quickly, and it would hinder him from going into towns and ministering to people. And because the crowds were growing so, he had to stay outside of the cities and have people come to him. Well, that was, that was part of the reason Jesus commanded people not to tell. But here there seems to be something else at play. I mean, after all, we were talking tens of thousands of people gathered around watching Jesus, and how effective would it be if Jesus is just not wanting to have more crowds and like, hey, shh, don't tell anybody, and 10,000 people say, okay, we won't, right? So there has to be something else going on here. One commentator writes this, if there's a messianic secret, it is because Jesus' right to be known as Son of God will be based on evidence much deeper than the parables, healings, and exorcism. You see, the crowd had needs. They wanted Jesus to heal them, and that is not a bad thing. Put yourself in their shoes. If you and I lived back then and had a terminal illness, would we not also walk hundreds of miles for days just for the outside chance we get to see Jesus? Sure we would. But what's happening here is Jesus is not wanting his identity to be limited to and boxed in as simply healer. Son of God equals healer. He, he, he's much more than that. And so when Jesus tells these demonic spirits and others to be silent, part of the motivation is he's not wanting the title Son of God to only be linked to healer. Jesus had the cross in view. Every moment of every day, the cross is in view. Jesus knew his identity as son of God would only be fully realized with his identity as the lamb 
of God. The one who would die for his people. The crowd pressed in so they could get a healing and live a little longer. Jesus was pressing on toward the cross so that we could live forever. It's good and it's right to come to Jesus with our daily needs. He tells us to. It's good and right to look to him as the one who fulfills our needs. But if we only know Jesus as the one who fulfills our needs, if we only come to Jesus when we believe we're in dire need of help, because we're always in need of help, we'll only see Jesus as one-dimensional. We'll only see Jesus as a means to an end. And he is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the gift. Knowing him is the prize. Knowing him is the treasure. Heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there and we will be with him. But we won't know that if, we, if we're content with just staying part of the crowd. If we're just okay with being on the fringe. I think anyone can tell the American church has had it way too easy for way too long. We've enjoyed wonderful freedoms, and I'm thankful for them, with very little persecution. But I think it's also right to say that in our comfort, we've lost our power. In our ease, we've begun to lose our edge. But know this, it's coming. Persecution is coming. The kind of persecution that is the daily reality for brothers and sisters of Christ around the world right now. It's not going to be so foreign to us very soon. Persecution's coming. And while I don't say that with joy, I do look forward to the result. Because it's in persecution that the crowd begins to thin. I'm not wanting less people to gather on a Sunday. But as we hear the gospel and respond, my desire is to see more people know Christ. Truly know him. Truly follow him. It doesn't cost us anything to be part of the crowd. But it does cost something to be a disciple. And it's when we face what we think we can't let go of. It's when we're holding on to something that the world says we have to have and we realize we don't. It's in that moment when those things begin to fade and we realize Christ is all we need. That's a beautiful moment where we were once content about being on the fringe. Now we just want more of Jesus. And a funny thing happens. It's not just Jesus we want, but we want to be around Jesus' people more. So there's hope if you're in the crowd, if you have been on the fringe, if you've always been one to kind of hang out around Christians but never fully dive in, if you've heard a lot about Jesus but you've not truly surrendered your life, there's hope. You don't have to go another day being part of the crowd. You can know him. And that's where we find our third and final group, the called. Jesus finally gets away 
with his disciples. This time, it's not by the beach, but it's up on a mountain. Notice the description Mark gives us in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. You see the contrast already? Jesus is not being harassed by his critics. He's not being crushed by the crowd. This is a place where Jesus is inviting those whom he has called to be with him. Mark says those he desired. Now that's not those who were most talented, who had earned the most brownie points, who had the most potential. That word desired is very purposeful. It means willed. Those whom Jesus had intended from the foundation of the world. Those whom Jesus called on the mountain were those already called on his mission. Even though they didn't understand it and would not comprehend it for years to come, Jesus called the called to himself. Now, why did he do it in this moment on this mountain? Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. Stop there. Jesus called them to be with him. The crowd went somewhere else, but the called were there with him. Those that he chose, those he wanted to be with him, and those who wanted to be there. We've mentioned before, it's easy to picture Jesus hanging around this group of disciples, politely tolerating them just putting up with them. That is not the case. He loved these men with all their faults and their failures. Every flaw, he still loved them. And how often do we think of Jesus seeing us that way, politely putting up with us until we get our act together? That is not Jesus' heart toward you. You are fully known and fully loved. And that love never changes. He can't love you anymore, and he won't love you any less. Jesus calls these disciples away on the mountain, I'm sure for some rest, prayer, maybe even some laughing and enjoying one another. But this is a pivotal moment in the book of Mark as well as the lives of these men. Look at the rest of verse 14. He appointed the 12, who he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus wanted them to be with him so that he might send them. See the connection. They had to be in his presence before they were going to be on his mission. Isn't that a helpful reminder for us? I know my own heart is often tempted just just to focus on whatever needs to get done and just go at it. Let's just go fix that thing. And if I'm not careful, I can also take that same mentality into my prayer time, focusing my immediate prayers on things or situations that need to be fixed. Or in reading my Bible, I I can be tempted to go to Scripture and say, okay, let me find something to apply to my life and then move on with my day. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with praying for our needs and wanting to apply Scripture to our lives. Those are good things. But in that, we often miss the more precious thing, and that is just being in his presence, 
just quietly spending time alone with the Lord, thinking on his goodness, thinking on his love, meditating on the cross, not saying anything and not reading anything, just being in his presence, reflecting on how good he's been to you in your life. And what happens is when you're not looking, when you're not expecting it, you don't even know what's going on, needs are being met. Things that you, if you were given enough time to think about and pray about, you'd be praying for that Jesus already knows and he's already addressing in your heart as you're just being in his presence. Jesus calls his disciples to be with him. Jesus wants your heart before he'll use your hands. We must know the intimacy of Christ before we will walk in the authority of Christ. Being always comes before doing. So take time to be in his presence. Find your joy again. Joy that has been lost through weariness. Joy that has been lost through COVID. Joy that has been lost through so many things these last couple of years. Find your joy again where the joy cannot be taken away. And that's in his presence. Jesus takes the initiative with these disciples to bring them to himself. This is not like the crowd. Those who wanted to just simply get what they could from Jesus and leave. These are those who wanted to be with Jesus and he wanted them to be with him. And notice the transition that happens. They go from being disciples, those who follow, to now being apostles, those who are sent. Jesus is about to send them to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And they can't do any of that in their own strength. They need supernatural power and authority. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them. Now notice, uncharacteristic of Mark who doesn't like to stop and give us a lot of detail, he does right here. He lists out the 12 disciples by name. Look at them quickly. First, we've got two sets of brothers. We've got Simon, who Jesus changes his name to Peter, and then Simon's brother, Andrew. Then you've got another set of brothers, James and John, who Jesus nicknamed Sons of Thunder. I bet these were really fun guys to be around. <laughs> Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas... Got another James, Thaddeus, got another Simon. This one is a political extremist, but Jesus still calls him. And finally, Judas, who Mark reminds us from the very first mention of his name, this is the one who would betray Jesus. Yet Jesus still calls him. Notice just in these little details what we can see about Jesus. Jesus renaming some. That's a sign of authority. You can't name someone unless you have authority over them. And then giving nicknames. Hey, sons of thunder. <laughs> That's a sign of affection. Real men with real pasts and real flaws, yet Jesus calls each one to be with him, that he might send them. Following Jesus, with Jesus, sent by Jesus, on his mission, with his authority. And while there are no more big A apostles today, you and I still follow in their footsteps. Those who are called by Jesus to follow him, to know him, to be with him, but not only for our own comfort. 
he has called each one of us to send us as well. To send us on his mission, with his authority, to preach the gospel. To preach the good news that Jesus saves sinners through faith in his name. To see captives freed. To see lives transformed and disciples made. That's the mission we've been called to. He has gathered us together to send us out. So that others will be with Jesus and know him as he is and be known. So this morning I give you that challenge again as we've gone through these different settings. If you have seen in your own heart some similarities with the critic, take note of that. That's God's grace to us. If you see in your own heart you're one that tends to find fault more than not, always discontent, more focused on rules and procedures and losing sight of people, there is hope for you. Speaking as a recovering Pharisee, I can tell you God can take a self-righteous heart and melt it in his grace. He can do that. If you saw the crowd pressing in with their needs, but then disappearing. If you feel some relatability to that, where you've wanted just enough of Jesus to be respectable, but not enough to be transformed. Where you've wanted to hang out with the church, but not really be part of the life of his church. You don't have to live that way. There's hope for you. Jesus doesn't want you to have a passing knowledge of him. He wants you to know him and be with him and to know one another in him. There's hope for you. And for all of us this morning, that we would be freshly aware of the blessing that it is to be among the called. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has called us out of loneliness and into fellowship with him and his people. He has called us out of our comfort to pick up our cross and follow him. Church, it costs nothing to be counted among the crowd, but it will cost everything to be counted among the called. But I promise you, whatever you lose, you have already gained infinitely more by knowing him and being with him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kind gift of knowing you. We quickly confess there are many things that distract us. But you, you are kind enough and you are powerful enough to break through all of our distractions, all of our hindrances. You're kind enough to break through the hardest heart and you're mighty to save. So this morning, Lord, I pray you would take every heart and make it pliable in your loving hands. That we would not just know about you, but we would know you and be known by you and be on your mission so that others will know you. For your glory, in your name we pray. Amen.